0: Welcome 1001 listeners to the third of three interviews we're doing with with the genealogical research team at Ancestry, which we're very proud to have as a sponsor of our 1001 network of podcasts. History is what we're all about here, and I believe that one of the most exciting and rewarding ways to learn history is through finding family ties, investigating family history, because their lives will tell you a lot about where you came from and what life was like in their time. One thing most of us find when researching our family histories is that our ancestors had it a lot tougher than we do. The further back you go, the tougher they had it. You will get a true appreciation of the hardships our ancestors went through to give us the life we have now. Whether you think life today is cushy or hard, these stories add perspective. In this series of podcasts, you'll get the rare opportunity to meet some top-notch career professionals who work long hours doing what they love to do breaking through the unknown to provide answers for families seeking relatives and ancestors, speaking in public worldwide about advances in DNA research, teaching in conferences, sharing stories, researching for television shows like Long Lost Family, appearing on newscasts, doing consults, researching for films, and getting people excited about discovering their heritage. And most of all, they really care about people and family, and that's what makes the team at Ancestry special. Today we have with us Michelle Erkenbrack, and she's been a family historian at Ancestry since 2010, and her passionate expertise has allowed her to be a historical advocate from small lecture halls to national TV. Her broadcast work includes appearances on CNN, HLN, Hallmark, HSN, and several major market newscasts and radio shows. She has contributed to the TV shows Who Do You Think You Are?, Long Lost Family?, and your family secrets revealed. She loves helping people discover the stories that lead to them. Michelle, it's great to have you with us today. How are you doing?
1: I'm good, how are you John?
0: Fine, thank you very much. And first question for you, what gets people interested in family history? It seems to me like it's it's becoming mainstream now and I'd kind of like to hear from you because you're working with that every day. What's your opinion? On what's getting people so fired up?
1: That's a great question, and it's a question that I get often. Um, I think there's an interesting moment happening right now. This kind of perfect storm um, that's really lent itself to family history becoming like having a a major moment. And um, I, I mean, we always we always have to pay like homage or acknowledge the influence of roots um the documentary or i guess it was a mini series um that was kind of the beginning of lavar burton's career based on the book by alex haley called roots about it was kind of semi-autobiographical um about him learning more about his ancestor um, kunta kinte and his his journey from Africa to America via uh, slavery, and um, and then just kind of tracing the family through time, and while that wasn't total like nonfiction, we'll say I mean it, there were some there were some creative elements that were at play there. Um, the being able to tell your story um, and being able to connect to the past, it. It totally captured America's imagination and, and ignited this excitement about, well, what can I find in my own family tree? And so that was kind of a watershed moment. And then things I, I I would say from like a mainstream media standpoint, tapered off a little bit. And we've seen a lot of that interest reignite with the TV show, Who Do You Think You Are? And that started in 2010. And... I can speak to that one very personally because I, um, right out of college, a recent history graduate, um, was hired at Ancestry to be a researcher for the first season of that show in 2010. And um, I remember at the time I was hired, I mean, I was kind of getting a behind-the-curtain look at my first behind-the-curtain look. Um, of TV production, which was Lisa Kudra was the executive producer. She was trying to help bring the show from the BBC um, over to the States. Um, How long it can take for production and a network and a company to all agree on everything and sign papers. That's probably one of the hardest parts of creating a TV show is signing the dotted line. And then what the, all of the ins and outs of Um, certain friend of a friend is interested in being on the show and so we build a tree but then with scheduling conflicts they're not able to actually film or um, building four or five generations hoping to find an interesting story to use as a pitch to get someone interested in the show so there were so many different trees that we were building and we were trying to build fast and that we were building for different reasons and it was um, a total roulette as far as who was going to actually film. Um, it, we started with this really broad funnel. and I mean, researched hundreds of trees. And then what would actually make it down to the bottom of the funnel was uh, much fewer trees than what we started with. And I remember at the time, my boss, um, I was a contractor. And I was kind of going from three-month contract to three-month contract. And she would say... Hang hang tight. You know, if we've got work for you, we'll keep you busy. But um, we're kind of taking a gamble on this TV programming family history flavor show. We don't know how popular it's gonna be. Uh, I don't know if this is if there's a a, a career in this. And um, you know, I can say nine years later, I'm in the same <laughs> position. Um So it made it. <laughs> who, do
0: you, who do
1: you think you are is still going strong. Um, and we're working on a handful of other shows. And so it really has proven to be, I mean, as far as TV programming with a family history focus has stood the test of time. It continues to be something that performs well, that people enjoy and that that really helps educate people on what ancestry does. And so it's great for our company. Um, and, and I think again, when you, have this. It was, Who do you think you are? Though was kind of that perfect combination of beautiful people, celebrities, um, compelling emotional storytelling, and traveling to beautiful places. And it's that formula that has drawn and people continues to draw millions of people in. Um, what every network week. is that? So okay. um, you know, it, it, so the show started on NBC, and it switched to TLC for several years and just this year nbc took it back they called it the one that got away broadcast the cable sure, to
0: broadcast pretty good yeah
1: and and for it to to i mean it's a very unusual path it's not often that nbc picks something back up right um, but it's been nominated for five emmys oh my god we, we haven't won one yet um i think this year we're up against Queer Eye again, which I don't think we're going to win. <laughs> but <laughs> but to be nominated, I think is is still a huge honor and speaks again to the caliber and the the intrigue of what we do.
0: Would you like to share some of the briefs from some of the biggest moments of that show that you that that you have?
1: Um, that yeah. So that, sure. I can. I can. What I can share with you anything that i worked on that made it into a broadcast episode i can speak to those elements so if it's something that hit the cutting room floor or someone that hasn't filmed i cannot share those details
0: fair enough um
1: but i uh, a few years ago i worked on john stamos's tree yeah. Who, I mean, I grew up with Full House, and who isn't in love with Uncle Jesse? I mean, such a handsome guy, so I was really excited to work on his tree. Yeah, part-time a drummer bit of, for the
0: Beach Boys, too, wasn't he?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and, um, yeah, there's, my uncle is a drummer, and so he's he's connected with John Stamos. Um, so I, there there's a little bit of a, I work familiar with that connection in my family. But, yeah, it was a total fangirl moment for me to get his tree, which is funny because... <laughs> I'm not actually learning about him per se, it's his people. And it was really tricky getting back to the immigrant ancestor on the Stamos line. And there was a story that they had immigrated from Greece through Mexico and then into the United States. Interesting. And man, I spent a lot of time. trying to figure out where they were and, um, ancestry. I mean, on average, we're adding 2 million new records to the site a day, which kind of, yeah, it boggles the mind. And so when we say, there's always something new to find, we're not exaggerating. There truly is always something new to find. And, um, one of the places that we've really grown exponentially in the last five years has been South America. And so, at the time we were just kind of starting to get good records for Mexico, but it does depend on this. It's kind of on a state by state basis. And I didn't know which state in Mexico they were living in. And I'm looking for a Greek name. I'm looking for John's. And I think it was John Staminopoulos. or so there were a couple of extra consonants on the end or, um, so I, I, again, I, was I felt like I was just beating my head against a wow. brick wall. And there was
0: nothing from John's side? Nothing had been passed down, verbal history, oral history? Well, the,
1: right. The, the oral history was that they'd come through Mexico, but in looking for the records, I just was drawing a blank. And I I was trying to come at it from every angle that I could. And I would move on to different parts of the tree and the report writing and then would always come back to that place and just, you know, try and hit up against it and see if I could figure it out and then move on. and. Um, it's two in the morning. I'm putting my report together. It's due the next day. And I have this light bulb of, I'll get an idea. I start doing some searches and I immediately find him in a border crossing as Juan Stamos. <laughs> 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 like, oh my gosh, Juan. Of course he's Juan. Yeah. Like I didn't think to look for Juan. I was looking for John. And awesome. so I know that was it sounds so obvious now, but it, man, I it took me a minute to kind of get to that point of, you know, even though he, I don't know, I'm sure they probably had learned some Spanish and, and picked that up, but I, I didn't think initially to look for a more um, Spanish version of his name in those records. And so that was kind of the breakthrough that when I handed it off to the next researcher that was a more had more experience and expertise in greek and mexican records yeah it really took off so i was just kind of that first phase of just get the tree five generations and then the real tree building story building phase was was a different researcher but um that was i always laughed that story (laughs) if you're interested in, in learning more about john stamos's family tree you should go watch his episode of the delightful TV show. Who do you think you
0: are? <laughs> I'm sure many of our listeners will.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a good one. You know, but the one of the things that I love about that show, you know, we tend to look at the celebrities specifically as kind of the subject as being very beautiful, glamorous, rich, successful, and um, we think maybe sometimes that they're different than we are. And um, when you start building their trees, their family trees look just the same as everybody else's. And, and the stories that you're able to tell are the same stories that anyone can discover in their own family tree. And I joke sometimes. I mean, they say doctors make the worst patients. I am so busy working on everyone else's family tree for all of the different types of projects that we work on at ancestry that I don't often dig into my own. And so, um, you know, one of the things that I wanted to talk with you today about was just this idea of everyday heroes that everybody has a hero in their family tree. You just have to find them. And I thought, okay, I'm going to take my own medicine. I'm going to go into my own tree and I'm going to just pick a line and see what I find. And, And to be fair, I've, you know, there's a lot in my family that's and a lot of my family tree that was done by my great grandmother. She was an avid genealogist and connected us back to, you know, early New England pilgrims and uh, settlers there. And so I know that there's lots that I can go and discover, but I've really been trying to focus on those first five to seven generations and finding pictures which has been a really cool project. And um, yeah, so I have pictures um, for every single person from myself back to um, second and third great grandparents, which is kind of awesome. And I recognize that that's in part because I'm a little bit younger. And so um, I have more of my family tree that's lived in the era of photography, but um it's there were and When I first started that particular project, I thought, well, I know there are families that have these gorgeous vintage pictures, but I've never seen them. So I just assumed they didn't exist, and that was not true. And I've been able to find and see so many pictures that I'd never seen before with the help of ancestry, with connecting with cousins. So um, anyway, my grandfather uh, passed away a few years ago. And um, he was a veteran of the Korean War, and I have heard stories about him. I mean, we ordered his service record from NARA after he passed away, but I just, I wanted, and I, and I know how far back that line goes. He, his name was David Packard, and I know that that line extends, again, back to very early New England, but... I wanted to kind of just learn more about maybe that more recent history. And so I started um, looking through just census records for his father, grandfather, and so uh, my first and second great grandfathers. And I mean, I found, I found new stuff. I mean, it's easy to go through the tree. I mean, census records, when you're doing family history research, that's kind of your bread and butter. They were taken every 10 years. They really become the scaffolding of your family tree um, because you get these uh, snapshots of the family that are rich with detail, but you have to spend the time to go through and read those forms and then glean the information out of them. And so as I was doing that, I, I found some interesting stuff. I mean, when I think about my grandpa, he was a salesman his whole life and he was often on the road and paying a mortgage and providing for a family on a commission pay. That's a, that's a hard way. It's a, it's a hard life. It's, it's not consistent money. And so that can be stressful and, and going through the census records, I learned that his father was a salesman too. And, man, that doesn't surprise me that there was something in the gene pool there because my grandpa was handsome, charismatic, and could just talk to anybody. And those were, I mean, those great traits to have for a salesman. And I wonder, too, you know, what did his father do? And I know that they both were salesmen in the West. So um, Wyoming, Utah, Idaho, Washington were different places that I think the family was. You know, it's funny, my grand, my great-grandpa, oh, I was like eight or so when he passed away. Um, but I remember him. He always had a bolo tie and the big cowboy hats. And the family story was he was in the Pony Express. Well, he was born after the Pony Express. Yes. Yeah. And he was born like 1904. Yeah. So... Um, I still need to try and find the origins of if there's someone in my family tree that maybe was in the Pony Express and it just got attributed to him because he always looked the part, but he was, he was like the consummate cowboy. He was born in Burlington, Wyoming, um, was the oldest of seven children and his father. I mean, I didn't know a lot about his name, um, was Joseph Packard. And in learning more about him, he is, he is really, I mean, it's, it's kind of this, it's learning about all of their lives together because they really do affect and inform each other. But, you know, my second great grandfather was born in 1877 um, and he lived in Wyoming, um, Montana, and Washington. So he kind of bounced around the West his whole life. And every 10 years, he was a different occupation. The, the census record that really kind of stopped me in my tracks was the 1910 census record uh, He and a wife he and his wife had been married 10 years um, they had it said that in 1910 and 1920 the government was trying to tra- trying to track child mortality and so they would ask the, the women in the, the home or the the wives of, in the home how many children they had, delivered and how many were still living and for my great-great-grandmother ella she'd had four children but only three were living so they've been married 10 years they have three boys they've already buried a baby whose name i do not know um and they were their address was coal mining camp number three and i think about as a mom having a five three and one year old Well, I have, I have one child who's one, but I think about, she had, her kids were five, three and one and she's living in coal mining camp number three. So she's probably living in what like the equivalent of a lean to there's probably no electricity or plumbing. It's probably a dirt floor. And she's got these three little boys that she's trying to keep warm and clean and fed. And, and, you know, they, they were married in Wyoming, but they're living in Montana and then they didn't go back to Montana. And so I'm thinking about that baby they lost, was the baby buried in Wyoming or was the baby buried in Montana and then they left afterward? Like I think about how hard it would be to leave a piece of you behind. Um, and then for, to have as a, as a wife, I mean, I think if your husband was doing something grueling and dangerous and not paying well, how much that would wear on both of you? How much you would worry about him and Is he being safe? Or anytime you hear about somebody being hurt or potentially killed in the coal mine, you'd worry that it was your husband. And am I going to be left with these three little dirty boys in a lean-to? And what am I going to do? I mean, it, it really just brought home to me how good our lives are. I mean, I think it's so often we think about the next step or. You know, we, we never are content with what we have. We're always trying to think about how to get to that next place, how to make more money, how to get a nicer car or a bigger house. And then you just go back a few generations, a hundred years in a census record. And, I mean, my people lived in poverty. That same great-grandfather Joseph, the last record I have for his life before his death, is the 1940 census, um, where he's 63 years old he's working 56 hours a week as a janitor at in a pool hall. And so he didn't get to retire. He didn't have a retirement, you know, and, and, and it's not just, I mean, you think about working in a pool hall. I mean, it means you're cleaning out ashtrays and scrubbing toilets. And I mean, it's a bar and that would be just not very glamorous work. It would be really, really dirty, hard work. And he, I don't know, he, he was 63 and, and working almost 60 hours a week. And so, you know, initially, when I thought about my grandfather, you know, I'm always, I'm so grateful for him and how hard he worked and the sacrifices that he made for his family. Because the story is, he was in college and was going to be, he was going to be the first college graduate in his family. But his first son, his their second child, was born with a congenital heart defect and died. And he had to drop out. To start making money to pay for that baby's funeral, and and it always kind of made my heart ache, you know, because again, it's such a gregarious, outgoing, talented, imaginative guy. It just makes you wonder if if his son had lived, how the trajectory of his life would have been different. Sounds and like it sounds
0: like that movie, It's a Wonderful Life, with Jimmy Stewart, when people just get tossed in different directions, and it's not the future you planned. So the, your your great grandfather. Those those earlier generations, those are our everyday heroes. You're right. We owe them so much. And that's one of the greatest things about what you do and about finding our ancestry is so we can appreciate those who went before and set up the life that we have, whether we think it's good or bad. For most of us, it's much, much easier than they had it, no matter how bad we think we have it.
1: Exactly. Uh,
0: We have all the conveniences today.
1: I know, I know, and, and again, you know, I think I was, I've always felt gratitude and pride in my grandpa for, again, the sacrifices he made for his family, but there was always that twinge of sadness and that what if, and yet learning about his grandfather, um, it totally put everything in perspective, that I'm sure his grandfather looks at him and thought, oh my goodness, you have a job that and you've got a car, and you've got this house, and this beautiful family, I mean, I I think that my grandfather was living his grandfather's dream, and he's, he, and again, I, I think it's okay to kind of, to appreciate the sacrifices that he had to make, especially in the wake of such a, a tragic moment in their family, so early in their marriage, um, but he's not someone to be pitied, you know, he's someone to be Proud of and admired, and I and I think about again how proud his grandpa is of him and the life that he had. Um, just on so many levels, I I think that he had it so good, and and he was such a good guy, and he lived such a good life. That kind of familial context, those kinds of stories um, are powerful when told to children. There was a study um, done by Emory University um, where they basically, it wasn't planned, obviously. It was happenstance where they had a, a, a sample of kids where they were trying to determine really the, the effects of mealtime conversation. And what they discovered was kids that knew about their family history, where there was a narrative of these are our people, these are who we these are the kinds of people that we come from and their names and their stories. They were more resilient. they were they were better in the face of stress. And then um, you know, fast forward a few years and those same kids were living in New York in the wake of September 11th. And um, Emory University followed up with them to find out if in the wake of something not just like everyday stressors, but truly traumatic and tragic, I mean, a global event happening in your backyard. Do you, are those same kids that were pegged as resilient before? Are they still in in the face of something horrific? And the the results were even stronger. That those kids that knew where they came from were better. They adjusted to deal with something huge like September eleventh. And so, you know, these these types of everyday hero stories. Um, they're not just nice or neat or quaint or cute they're powerful and they're important and they're crucial for this upcoming generation to be able to withstand the stresses that are in their lives that were not in our grandparents' lives the the bombardment of information and um, in some ways you know conflicting information or ideas i mean you have to be able to stand on solid ground in order to be able to um, sift through those ideas and figure out where you stand on certain things i think and we live in the best of times and the worst of times and to be able to anchor a child in a knowledge of who we are and where we came from that you know really those answers of who am I and where did I come from can be answered in such a personal, powerful way through family history that can't really come in any other way. Other beliefs that you know, those can kind of come and go. Those are subjective, those can change, but who you are, your clan, those are your people. That's where you came from. And and it's interesting because we talk about the Emory study because it's so fascinating and I think it is super powerful for kids to have that information, but why would we limit it to just them? I mean, that same benefit can be had by anyone. By learning more about their family history, you can become more resilient. You can become more grounded, have better context for the type of DNA that runs in your veins. And DNA we, which we should talk about, isn't just, you know, the ethnic pie chart of where in the world did I get my red hair from, but it's also, I mean, there's, I am an absolute believer in epigenetics and the strange things like a love of music or, you know, being a diehard sports fan, there are certain things that we inherit from our people and that knowing those stories helps us, us better understand ourselves.
0: A lot of our listeners, I'm sure, have tried to follow their family trail back and a lot have not. I'm hoping you can share with us the best way to join the process. Uh, There's a lot of different companies out there that offer DNA testing. And you're very, very familiar I'm sure with all of them, but expressly familiar with Ancestry. So I'd like you to kind of start our listeners who haven't done it yet on that route. Uh, How would you get started? What's the best way to do it? And then uh, how do you bring together the family tree?
1: Sure. Well, on Ancestry, anyone can build a family tree for free on Ancestry. So you can go in and just what we say is start with what you know, even if it's not super detailed. You know, I know my dad was from New York and his dad was also from New York. I mean, it, it can be approximate dates and places put in the names that you know. Um, and then ultimately, the more information you add, hopefully at some point, you'll get a little shaky leaf, which is a hint. And that's Ancestry saying, okay, based on the information that you've given us, um, we think we found some historical records for you. Now, um, here's a good moment to talk about what Ancestry has and what it doesn't. Um, We don't have everything. (laughs) Um, 15 billion records sounds like a lot, because it is. And we're, like I say, 2 million new records a day means we're always growing Um, and it means we've got really great um, record coverage with the places where we started first I mean ancestry has been around for 30 years and so the beginnings of the company focused on America because that was where the company was started so American records and then where did Americans come from so England We've, we've been focusing on other regions of Europe Um, But then because uh, what we've been able to find or not find or access or digitize or not digitize is largely dependent on the privacy records of specific countries and then the states within those countries. So some states we have phenomenal records that are very detailed and some states we don't have very much. But it's wholly dependent on the legislation within those specific places. English speaking countries, we have a lot of stuff. Places like the Middle East and Asia, we don't have very much. And we absolutely recognize the opportunity that lies in wait there. But again, part of that is dependent on the types of records that were created and and being able to access them. I mean, I don't think we're gonna be able to get into China very soon, (laughs) just based on the way that current politics are. Um, But it's again, we're always looking for opportunities to try and create rich experiences for everyone, regardless of where they're from. And so for someone who might be from a place where we don't have great record coverage yet, I would say still build a family tree, still go in and capture what you know, the names and dates and relationships and places that you do have. And while we might not have the records yet to help you learn more, you are creating a record of your family for future generations to find. And I, I don't think you can overemphasize how important that is because it maybe maybe you are creating the the, the loan record for your family for a while. I mean we always have hope that the future that there's gonna be more to come. Um, but in the meantime, be the creator of a family record and and how powerful that is to be the historian um of, of your family story um, anyone can upload the pictures that they have of their family um, so we've got millions of um, user submitted documents which in a lot of cases like pictures or diaries or um, funeral pamphlets those are things that ancestry would be able to actually have access to those personal family records that people upload um, again create a record and an accessibility that we wouldn't be able to do without all of that user submitted content so there is so much to find and I think there even in capturing your own living family there's value in that any tree that's created that you have living individuals for or if someone doesn't have a death date or they're marked as living um their information is always kept you can only see it in your tree anyone else it's kept locked away from. Um, we take privacy so seriously, and the people that are really leading the march on privacy are Ancestry employees because we are customers first, and it's important to us to create an experience that we feel comfortable with too. And so, um, nobody is a bigger advocate for the privacy of personal information than than I am. Then we, and I think that that translates into a better customer experience. Now to To address your question about DNA, DNA is an awesome place to start if you kind of want to dip your toe in the family history pool, but you're not quite ready to to create a tree yet or that doesn't maybe appeal to you right now. Um, I know it sounds really time consuming and honestly, you can spend as much or as little time as you want. Um,
0: (laughs) It's true. there's
1: There's always value to, I mean, whatever you can do, there's value in whatever that is. Though we do have to warn you that once you kind of start digging in, we, they talk about the bug. Once you get bit by the genealogy bug, it's hard to stop because it's so interesting and engaging. But yeah, I love DNA as a great first step. AncestryDNA.com is where you can go to learn more. You can also order tests online. And really the, the whole Ancestry experience is digital. And so you buy the tests online. Um, you get mailed a little test tube and we ask for maybe just like a teaspoon or two of saliva. Um, We say do it first thing in the morning before you have any breakfast or coffee because what we're looking for in a saliva sample is actually dead cells from your cheek. And so if you've recently brushed your teeth or eaten something, it introduces other stuff into a saliva sample and it kind of washes away a lot of those cells. So I guess if you really wanted to make sure that we got enough DNA, you could just kind of rub your cheeks against your teeth a little bit and then um, spit into the tube. And um, what we do, uh, there's a little cap that you screw on really tight and then it eventually snaps. It breaks a stabilizing, a blue stabilizing solution that drops down into your saliva. You keep twisting it till it stops and then you shake it up and that um, stabilizing solution makes it so that we can that the the cells in that sample are preserved. Um, and then you mail it in. Outside of getting the test tube in the mail and mailing it back, that's really the only thing that gets mailed to you. Everything else is online on the site. Usually takes about four to six weeks to get your, your results. But once you get that email saying that your results are in, you log into your Ancestry account, click on the DNA tab at the top, and it'll there are a couple different experiences there. The first is the ethnicity estimate. With the ethnicity estimate, that's where you get that breakdown of where in the world did my DNA come from? And this is an interesting thing to talk about. I think once I kind of explain what that is and isn't, it makes sense to people, but I think it still surprises them because it challenges how they viewed themselves and what they've inherited. Most people, when you think about a pedigree, so if a pedigree is like a tree, you've got your parents, grandparents, -grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents, just kind of all the way back, Um, everybody thinks that they have, like, one little piece from everybody, that I am a culmination of everyone that came before me. Um, But in reality, I'm 50% my mom and 50% my dad. So if you think about each parent like a deck of cards, it's like the deck was shuffled and cut. And it's shuffled and cut with each child. So if you think about... Like the birth of each child is like a deck of cards that's shuffled and cut. Each, like all of my siblings, we all kind of look like we belong. But if we were to each take a DNA test, every single test would look different because we got different pieces of the puzzle. And so it's it's interesting to think that, you know, I've got 50% of my mom's DNA, which means I've got about a quarter of my grandmother's. But what 75% of her DNA did I not get? Did, was it, did I get the Dutch or did I get the English? Did I get a little bit of both or did I only get one? And so if you think about that going back and back and back further in time, it means that there are pieces of DNA that I've inherited. I mean, I've got some random Scottish lines say for example that maybe aren't that I or that are just lost to time that specific DNA no one has inherited which is kind of a little bit sad to think about but then what I did inherit can in some way if we knew how I mean our DNA doesn't come with tags on it so we don't know who it came from but in reality it came from someone millennia ago. That somehow that DNA has truly withstood the test of time. And it's just, it's totally random what we inherit and what we don't. So I think that that kind of shakes up some people's perspectives on themselves. And so while I am truly a product of all of my ancestors and I build the tree for all of them, I look for stories for all of them. Who I am isn't this perfect sample of everybody. I only have certain pieces. And so when I look at my ethnicity results, when it says, you know, England, Ireland, I have a little bit of Italy that I actually have no idea where that came from. German, I've got all these different pieces. I can kind of guess and look at my tree and see where they might've come from. But if there's like a big hole, that doesn't surprise me because I, I understand from a genetic standpoint that I don't have everything. And that's why it's interesting to get as many people in the family tested. If you still have a parent that's alive or maybe an aunt or uncle, you have the oldest person in your family take a test because that's gonna give you better ideas of, okay, oh, so this random Italian came from this side of the family. That's interesting information to have. It helps you better understand. Just it gives you a better perspective of your family tree. And really, I think that that's one of the differentiators with ancestry DNA, is it's the most integrated into in a family history sense. No, no other test allows you to connect your family tree to your DNA. Um, no other company is looking at those together. And what's fascinating is. I think we have 15 million people that have taken the test, which is a lot. And as more people have taken the test, we have better data on what the different things in our DNA mean. Um, I know there are lots of different DNA tests out there for are uh, genetics nerds in the house, hey, and I'm totally one too. There's Y-DNA that only looks at the Y chromosome that's passed from father to son, father to son. Mitochondrials only passed from mother, daughter, mother, daughter. Um, we're an autosomal test, which means we're looking at everything. We want all of the information. And I actually think that's more powerful. It's a, it's, it's a little more, speci- we can tell you more specific things, especially when it's talking geography. We have a whole team of scientists where their whole job is to better understand migration patterns over time. And it's interesting because with an ethnicity like Ireland, that lights up like a flare. We're real confident on Ireland because politically, historically, and geographically, it has been isolated in different ways. Now obviously there's there's have been lots of people that it, that went into Ireland and lots of people that have left but historically because it was an island because they were treated poorly by you know England mainland UK they were a little the genetically they're more isolated which means there's um it's a much stronger signal we're really 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 confident when we find Irish in your DNA a place like France or Germany we're getting better at but it's it's a little bit harder to peg that down than it is Ireland because let's talk about how many different countries have inhabited that one place. Exactly.
0: Roman civilization.
1: We're trying to figure out, so we're calling it, we're calling it like a a, a German region, but that doesn't necessarily mean they've only lived in German. What we now know in is modern day the region that is Germany. Um, that's included France in some instances. That's I mean, we're we're having to think in a very expansive way about what these different groups look like and what they include. And if you have German, you almost invariably have some French. You're not just nobody's just one thing. I mean, the and and we and it's funny because you say that, I say that nobody's just one thing. And then you'll randomly have someone take the test in Minnesota, and they're almost and they've lived their families lived in Minnesota for 200 years but they're almost 100% swedish. Which blows my mind that that could even happen in 2019, but you get these random pockets where you have these anomalies, but I think for someone to be something just one thing will become more and more rare as our as the human race continues because of just how globally interconnected we are. There will continue we'll just continue to see more and more variation it's really fascinating. So you do get some people where they're like, yep, you know what? I, I know I'm from the Philippines. My family's been here for a long time. And usually as a, an area that's been colonized, you get some other um, influences that sometimes come through. But usually you can say like, sometimes there aren't surprises, but sometimes there are. It's, it's an interesting thing to look at. And we're always updating things but really the ethnicity is only one half of the DNA product. I mean, there's so many other things that we're adding that we're gonna continue to add. Um, Things like traits, like do you, or does your DNA tell us that you do or don't like cilantro? Like there are just different things that we're trying to tease out of it that's interesting. The cousin matches is really awesome. What we do is we look at your DNA and we compare it to the 15 million other people that have also taken the test. And see how much DNA you share. Um, The more DNA you share, the higher they'll be on your list. And so for me, my parents have taken the test. They're my very first matches. And it says parent-child because we know when you share that much DNA, that's the only option that there is, is parent-child. And then you can get down to close family, which is first cousins and grandparents. and, And it just kind of trickles down from there. Um, the further the, the relationship gets, the fuzzier we get on how accurately we can tell you. I mean, we say, like, third cousin, but it could be a second cousin once removed. I mean, the less DNA you share, the harder it is to to confidently say what the relationship is. But close family, parent-child, I mean, that, there's no questioning that. That's always accurate.
0: Could you remind our listeners what relationship a first cousin would have? In other, in other words, to which ancestor? Do first cousins connect? And same, same yep. with second cousins.
1: Sure. Yep. So if you're first cousins, that means you share a grandparent. And so that's kind of how I think. Okay, so siblings share a parent. Um, first cousins share a grandparent. Second cousins share a great grandparent. And then if I meet my second cousin, but my second cousin wants to know what their relationship is to my child, that generation drop is a once removed. So when they say, oh, we're second cousins once removed, my, if I'm second cousins removed from someone, that means it's my mom's second cousin because there's a generation away. So, I mean, that's what I have to do. I can't do it in my head. I kind of have to talk it out loud and step my way through the tree to figure out how people are related. Um, but I don't, I know most, I know my all of my first cousins, but I I know there are second cousins that I've never met mm-hmm. and that have taken the DNA tests That have reached out and said okay so it looks like we're related on this line i've got pictures are you interested to which the answer is always yes i'm amazed at how i mean people that take the dna the ancestry dna community is an active one and they're usually just looking for pictures i know it's so strange i've had a couple of people say oh have you ever had somebody ask you for money Which always surprises me because the answer is invariably no. no. Uh -uh. (laughs) Like, I don't know. I I mean, if somebody needs money buying a $70 DNA test and (laughs) messaging people that probably won't message you back, it seems like one of the more inconvenient ways to get money. So I've never seen it. I mean, I guess unless you are super rich and famous and they find out that they're related to you because of your celebrity maybe they'll be you know shameless and ask but i mean everyone that i've interacted with on the ancestry site is just they just want to know who you are they want to try and figure out how you connect and then if you've got any stories or pictures that you can share so it's it's actually been a really a really rich positive experience for me
0: I would like to encourage all of our younger listeners, or listeners of any age, but especially younger listeners, that one of the best conversations you can ever have is to approach an elder in the family, be it uh, a grandfather, a grandmother, a great-grandfather, a great-grandmother, or great-uncle, or great-aunt, and just say, could you spend a few minutes with me? I'd love to hear about the family history. And tell me a little bit about your life and your history. And do you have any photos or things that I can copy to my phone or my laptop that I could add to the family tree, and I think you'll have some of the most exciting conversations and meaningful conversations you've ever had. Uh, Finding family history and talking to your elders about their history and what they know about their family can be one of the most meaningful times. I've never forgotten some of the conversations I've had, even with my wife's grandmother, and just talking about her growing up in New York City back in the days when People would set up their carts uh, outside on the street and sell their uh, fresh food and vegetables or or the Iceman coming because they had no electricity. And they take you back into a time of history that you may not be familiar with. And it's a wonderful, wonderful time spent with them. And older people generally love that time because not everybody thinks about spending it with them.
1: Oh, sure. I mean, I am up until I was 31 years old, I had all my grandparents and I, you know, I really, like with my grandpa that's passed, I mean, I his his health was not great in those last 15 years. And so I I tried to take him to plays. I tried to spend time with them. I mean, even for my grandma, who's trying to be a caretaker, I would, one time I randomly stopped in. I was coming back from meetings um, downtown and, and drove past their house. And I just told my husband, I'm going to go see my grandparents, like, have dinner without me. And um, they were on their way to the store, and so I took them to the store. I mean, it was just simple things like that. I think just spending time, it, you can't ever get that back. I mean, time truly is the most valuable resource we have and and it's the one that we're so quick to squander and it's funny because being a family historian i would often ask them okay tell me about this or this and i have an iphone and there's a voice recording app on the phone and so anytime somebody started telling stories i'd always whip that out and just set it on the table and record the conversation so that i have it ancestry has an app which makes it really easy to if there's a picture hanging on the wall at your aunt's house you can take a picture and upload that directly to your tree from your phone what i have found to be really awesome has been when i print off a record and take it to them because honestly i think you hit you get in your twilight years and people ask you the same questions over and over again and you give them the same answer and i think sometimes getting to the story you're looking for you keep asking the same question you're going to keep getting the same answer and so you have to find different ways of coming at it i mean next time you watch the news or you're watching an interview listen to the questions that are being asked and how and 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 i mean i guess you can kind of lead a little bit if there's a really great response Figure out what was the question that was asked because that helps you as as a, as someone that's looking for information. So, yeah, I was looking through my family tree and Ancestry has the largest collection of yearbook photos, yearbook pages in general online, which are so much fun to go through. We've got both high school and u- university and I found my grandmother's dad, so my great grandpa, in a football picture in the yearbook. Football players are kind of crouched down, you know, in that, that, so all the linemen are kind of down in that stance, but they've got these like cheerful looks on their faces. And my great grandpa was in full snarl. He was the only one that was like looking mean. (laughs) And so I pulled it up on my phone and I'm like, grandma, have you seen this picture? And she said, she kind of looked at it and, and I don't, I can't remember if she'd seen the picture or not, but she was kind of like. Oh, yeah, they called them Tiger. And I was like, what? I had never heard that story. And she's looking at me like I'm the one that's crazy <laughs> yeah, right. for not knowing that they called them Tiger. Like yeah. everybody called him Tiger. And I guess he was best in state and could have gone pro, but he mm. decided to get married instead. And my great grandma was his high school sweetheart, and they called her Tiger Lily. <laughs> and my mind was blown because I'd never heard that story before. Yeah. And I'm sitting here going, man, we spend a lot of time together, I lived with her for a summer that had never come up, and it was just funny to me because I was the one that was getting all these weird looks because I didn't know that, and I think for her it was just so ingrained in who she was that she didn't think that any, it, it never occurred to her like, oh, I haven't told this person this story, yeah. or she would told my mom, but my mom had never told me. Yeah. like. Yeah. People don't realize what you don't know. And so when you say, tell me a story, she didn't think, let me tell you about tiger and tiger lily, which that is a fantastic story. (laughs) Taking, I mean, building the tree in a vacuum Isn't a great way to do it. It's absolutely something that you can do on your own in your pajamas at three in the morning or in the background while your significant other is watching this dumb show you don't want to watch. I mean, it's the perfect hobby because you can do it really whenever you want, but it doesn't just have to be a solo venture. Take the documents offline, pull them up on your phone or print them off and share the stories Make sure that those people and their lives and those events aren't forgotten, but with, again, those those elders in your family, even if it's about them, print, um, I printed off a census, or I was showing my grandma a census record from her life, and we were just talking about the neighbors. Okay, so it looks like so-and-so lived next door, and she said, oh yeah, he was my boyfriend for four years in high school. And I had, again, I had never heard that story and I got this really interesting courtship story about how long she had dated this boy and that they'd never kissed. And then I think he got impatient and started dating somebody else and he kissed this other girl on the first date and my grandma was done. She's like, no, we're done. And, and I think he was surprised. I think. In his mind, he was hoping to make her jealous, and it totally backfired. <laughs> so it's just this funny courtship story that I got because I'd printed off a census record. Pretty of good. the boy next door that got impatient.
0: Do you have a story of a long-lost relationship, maybe brother-sister or brother-brother or sister-sister, who were separated for a long time and maybe didn't know each other existed and finally got back together? Do you have any stories like that that you've worked on?
1: Yes. So, I mean, really— The the DNA test is interesting because once you take a closer look at your DNA and your cousin matches and your family tree, it's not uncommon to find that some things don't fit. I was looking at a family member's DNA, you know, he knew that, I mean, yeah, his mom took off when he was little. And so he was raised by his dad. And he had been told that he had older sisters that had been given up for adoption. So he decided when he was ready that he wanted to take the DNA test to see if he could find these sisters. He has close family matches that are half-sisters in the tree that, you know, we've reached out to. But I don't think they've gone back and checked their DNA or they haven't logged into Ancestry since they took the test. So they haven't seen our messages. So we haven't been able to connect with them yet. But then he had other family members other close family members that were in the database, that I was looking at the tree, and then looking at his family tree, and the names didn't match. None of the names matched. And I was really confused. And I'm like, I know who his mom is, and I know who his dad is, but on the parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, none of the surnames were the same. and. Sometimes it's hard to see the forest for the trees, and I took it to my coworker, and she said, you have a non-parental event in this tree. Like, somebody who you think is a parent in here isn't, which kind of blows the doors off. And the, one of the close family matches had a tree attached, and I looked to see who had built that tree, and it was a coworker at Ancestry, which, I mean, it doesn't get any more, I mean, it was such a small world coincidence, it totally blew my mind and so i approached her and was kind of asking her some questions about her tree and the unit of dna if you want to the way that we know how much dna two people share is centimorgans which is a dna unit that we use to measure how much or how little people have in common so basically what i found out is that my family member and my coworker they were first cousins and so her grandmother and his her grandmother was his grandmother as well. And that meant that one of my co-workers' uncles was his dad. And so I had to go to him and say, the man that raised you as a single dad after your mom took off, is you're not biologically connected to at all. And, to, you know, that was tough. That was really hard. There's just a lot of loss there. I mean, I think... We hear these stories in the news about people being reunited, and we see the happy ending. But that's like step 15. There are 14 other steps to get to that point. And I think anybody, any reaction you have to finding out that there's a surprise in your family tree is a valid response. It it might not be a happy response. It could be surprise, shock, angry, sad, mad. I mean, any... And all of the above, that's valid, and that's okay. And I I know that some people say, well, I'm adopted, and I have a right to knowing my biology, and and that's true. You do have a you do you need to know your biology, and I think for adoptees, there's a there's a journey that that they have to traverse. On some adoptees, don't care, and that's okay. Um, if you want to know about you know, health history or where's my tribe from, or my, where are my people from, that's okay too. If if knowing about your ethnicity estimate is sufficient for you, that's great. But if you want to know their names and where they lived, I mean, that's going to take some more time. And even that does not give you a right to a relationship. And I think that that can be hard. And again, I think that in my in my personal experience, I'd say, 98% of the cases do get to that happy ending of, I'd like to meet you and get to know you and wanting to kind of have more relationship, but that does not happen overnight. That can take a lot of time for people and, and that, there's nothing wrong with that. And so I think it's important to keep that in mind that it can take time and steps and it's a process to get to that point
0: is that it seems that in in the genealogy business that you're constantly coming across these connections that are just that, well, what do you know? The person sitting next to me, we share the same relative or this person shared the same relative or you've been working for 20 years right down the hall from somebody who a new, whose family merged with your great-grandfather. Do you find
1: that a lot in this business? Or yeah, just- I mean, it's just happening enough that I, I couldn't actually put a number to it, but I, it does happen. Um, I was at an event in New York and um, was approached by a reporter who introduced me to her half brother. And she's, she's like, was so excited to, the ancestry was there and to talk to us because she's like, you're not going to believe this story. And I'm like, oh, I've heard it all, honey. Let's hear it. <laughs> and she said, well, I took a DNA test. And I think she, she had, I don't know the exact details of her story, but at some point she had learned that, um, she was conceived via a sperm donor. And so, um, that was what was needed for her family to get her. And she was interested to take a DNA test to see how many other siblings she had. And, um, she said that they've identified about 12 so far. So she's got 12 half siblings that they are all connected to this sperm donor, Um, and in that case specifically, I mean, I don't know, sometimes you get a college-age kid that's short on cash and doesn't quite, who can't fathom DNA testing, and then, you know, you fast-forward 30 years and you've got 12 kids, I mean, there's no way that you could have possibly imagined that, and in those cases, I've seen a couple where they, they don't want a relationship, and that's okay. Um, But in this instance, he has reached out and talked to these kids and shared about him and his life and, you know, is getting to know their names. And as she's been was connecting with her biological father and then these other half siblings, I think she was born in Massachusetts and these kids were born all over the United States. But she discovered that she had a half brother that was working in the same building as her in Manhattan, which I, yeah, it's astounding. It's totally astounding. And I, again, it, it points to there is so much about genetics and inheritance and biology that we don't know. Well, we don't I understand. couldn't agree with
0: you more. I, I've studied Edgar Casey quite a bit, and he believed that, that um, relationships, human relationships, that we tend to stay within the same circle of people. Uh, through past lives, not only this life, but through past lives, and don't even realize it, but those circles are constantly interconnecting. And, of course, that's theory, and you can take it any way you want. But it is interesting when you think about it and try to apply it, because there are just so many coincidences that happen. I'll give you a quick story. That's my sister in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And she and I, 15 years ago, were trying to find more out about the Hagedorn family. And we'd kind of hit a stumbling block there, because Dad really hadn't filled us in. And her coworker comes up to her one day, and she's talking about her her family history up in upstate New York. Well, guess what? <laughs> we shared the same. They were cousins. Uh, they shared the same uh, great grandmother, and they had a they had a total family tree. So here, her coworker and and her one of her best friends uh, has the same connects with the same family history, hundreds of miles away many years away and it's just so strange how it all comes together at just one example but you begin to wonder about Casey's theory there must be something to that maybe
1: I well I again I I think it's inherited and I before I really started doing a lot of these DNA cases I was very I'm I'm an individualist and so I'm i absolutely believe in Um, personal choice and personal choice over all else, but then would have put my money on nurture over nature. And I, you know, personal choice and nurture are absolutely factors and you cannot count those out, but you can't count out nature either. And I think we're just beginning to see and understand how that works because I mean, one of the things with my family member he loves Pepsi. I mean, just a Pepsi fanatic. He drank Pepsi all the time. And as they were talking about his dad and kind of sharing stories and getting to know each other, they were like, "Okay, well, he died on this day, and um, on the anniversary of his death, we all go to his grave and we pour a Pepsi on his grave, because he was a huge Pepsi drinker." And I, that I couldn't believe it. Because if he'd been raised by that man and that was what you drink in the home, that's one thing. But to be to have they never crossed paths. They were never in contact. And yet somehow they were both diehard Pepsi drinkers. I mean, how do you explain that? I don't think it's coincidence. There's something genetically about You know, the way that their brains are wired for a certain combination of carbonation and sugar, or their taste buds, or both that made them hard Pepsi fans. And there's something about our genetics that that lends itself to that. And so there's a mystery. um,
0: There's a mystery behind it, definitely. Oh, just because we don't know
1: yet. But yeah, like even those two, those half siblings that, who, Again, we're not raised by their father, but right? we're not raised by their biological father. Um, inherited something that, yeah, just a drive and an interest that they both wanted to go live in, you know, New York City. They wanted to be where stuff was happening. They wanted to live in a big city, and uh, I think they're both in journalism, and they ended up in the same building. I mean, it's it's crazy. There was something they inherited that. Gave that, where they had a common thread and drive and interest that helped them end up in the same spot. Family history can mean so many different things to, to so many different people, um, but you'll never know what it means to you until you dig in. If whatever your preconceived notion about family history isn't appealing, ditch it and do something different. Find what it means to you. Find a way to engage with your family and your past in a way that excites you. And then whatever that is, awesome. Do that. Because not having those roots, I mean, every, uh, you if you want a strong tree, if you want to be able to spread out those branches, you have to have roots. And you can get roots in a lot of different ways. You can anchor yourself in lots of ways. But family is an important one. And even if you don't have a relationship with your family, if your past is painful, there is something cathartic about getting context for that. And you don't have to spend a lot of time on the people that hurt you, you can go past them and see if maybe there's something in their past that gives you not an excuse, not a past, but just some context for, you know, where did the pain in this family start? And if you understand where it started, you can better you can be in a better place to be the end of it. And again, there's there's truly healing and catharsis and empowerment and identity, um, resilience and um, pride that that can come when you just learn about your past. So I would just hope that people feel empowered and excited motivated to just go um, find find what works for them. And as far as a resource goes, if if you're, you've built a family tree but you don't know how to attach the historical records, if you've built a family tree and maybe need help in learning how to do more research or want to better understand your DNA results, Ancestry has a YouTube channel um, where you can go and They've got tons of tutorials and how-tos. Krista Cowan, I sit right next to her. She's a Burfoot genealogist. Um, she's got hour, hundreds of hours of content there to help get you started.
0: Thank you so much, Michelle Erkenbrack, for your experience and for sharing this time with us. We appreciate it very much, and we hope we get a lot of people excited about finding out a little bit more about themselves. I uh, appreciate all the time you spent with us today. Thank you so much.
1: Hey, happy to be here. Thanks, John. All right, take care. Hey, thanks. Bye.
0: Bye Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining us, 1001 Heroes listeners. I hope you enjoyed this time we spent with Ancestry's Michelle Erkenbrack. And to get started, remember, it's as simple as going to Ancestry.com forward slash 1001 to get a special discount on the DNA test. And remember, the family tree product that they have is free. And they're the only company I know of that matches up the DNA With the family tree, it's one exciting, exciting way to get into genealogy. And we hope you do. And please let us know about it when you do. Thank you so much, and thanks for being fans and listeners of 1001 Heroes. We'll be back real soon. Bye-bye.